Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Friday, July 22nd, 2022 edition of On Iowa Politics. And who boy, it's a good one. We are chock full of podcasty goodness this week. We'll be discussing Governor Reynolds on red flag laws, some big votes in the U.S. House, and all kinds of new Iowa poll, re- Iowa poll results. Hello, everyone. I'm Aaron Murphy, the Des Moines Bureau Chief for the Gazette and Cedar Rapids. And one of these weeks, I'll make it through an intro without fumbling over my tongue. With me today are Gazette Deputy Bureau Chief Tom Barton. Good morning, Tom. Good morning. Lee Des Moines Bureau Chief Caleb McCullough. Good morning, Caleb. Good morning. Sarah Watson of the Quad City Times is here. Good morning, Sarah. Good morning. Jared McNett of the Sioux City Journal as well. Good morning, Jared. I uh, I always run toward the danger, Aaron. <laughs> <laughs> Gazette Opinion Editor Todd Dorman is here. Good morning, Todd. Good morning. All right. First up this week, uh, we want to go over something uh, real quick that we wanted to last week, but our esteemed colleague Tom Barton was unavailable for last week's podcast. Uh, but Tom wrote a story uh, about the incentive, uh, pardon me, incentives that are being offered by the federal government that encourage the state to enact so-called red flag laws as a means to help prevent gun violence. Uh Tom, I'll let you take it from here. Tell us more about your story, um, and in particular, what Governor Reynolds had to say about the topic. Yeah, so in a state where lawmakers have loosened gun restrictions for several years, incentives are coming from the federal government to enact the so-called red flag laws that would allow groups to petition a court to temporarily confiscate a firearm from a person who's deemed a threat to themselves or others. The federal gun control legislation uh, passed in June included funding for states to enact those laws. Governor Kim Reynolds didn't rule out the state passing a red flag law next year, but she questioned their effectiveness. Gun safety advocates say that these measures are a proven way to intervene before gun violence, such as a, a gun suicide or a mass shooting, takes more lives. Some gun rights activists contend that the measures instead give courts broad discretion to confiscate firearms without due process. Uh, National polling suggests strong majorities of Americans from across um, the aisle, from from across the political political spectrum, support these extreme risk laws. 19 states and the District of Columbia have adopted them in the last few years, and social science suggests that they work most strikingly in preventing gun suicide. Reynolds at a news conference last week, however, said that Illinois' red flag law failed to prevent a man there with a known pattern of concerning behavior from shooting dozens of people at a July 4th parade in Highland Park, Illinois. Reynolds said, quote, no matter how many Iowans or rules you have on the books, if somebody has evil in the heart, you can't handle that, end quote. Uh, Lawmakers, lawyers, doctors in Illinois say that um, there may not have been enough public awareness of the state's Red flag law at the time, uh, law enforcement came into contact with um, the person who police said uh, confessed to that Highland Park shooting. Uh, the recent federal legislation uh, includes money for public awareness campaigns and, and more training for police. Um, Reynolds said that the issue of gun violence needs to be addressed holistically while preserving lawful gun owners' rights to, to bear arms under the, the Second Amendment. She said that, uh, quote, there's not one single answer, um, but that uh, we'll take a look at everything, but it's a, a balance in, in how we move forward. Yeah, um, so if, if, if uh, you missed it, Tom did a really good job. It's a really comprehensive story that, that got at the issue, not just from the he said, she said um, 
angle, but uh, he, he talked to experts in, in their fields and, and, and did a really good job explaining this. So if you missed it, uh, punch up Tom's name and, and um, red flag laws in your Google machine and, and check out that story. Um, it's an interesting um, kind of position now that states are in uh, as, as people look for ways to tackle or address uh, gun violence. And obviously, as, as Tom noted, this gets into the whole you know, uh, Second Amendment and, and gun rights uh, um, realm. Todd, we, we have a lot of ground to cover this week, so I don't want to belabor this too much. But uh, before we move on, uh, give me your quick odds on Iowa's Republican majority legislature uh, passing a red flag law here, even with those federal incentives. Well, uh, do you believe in miracles? <laughs> no. <laughs> oh, that, that's much more sad than I remember Al Michaels saying it. Right, right. Yeah, uh, there's about about the same chance of, you know, Iowa winning the national championship in football as the Iowa legislature passing red flag laws or any restriction on, on firearms. So uh, the governor didn't seem enthusiastic as, as Tom reported. And uh, yeah, I would, I would definitely doubt that it has much of a chance. And it's, it's worth noting that um, Iowa Republican state lawmakers are going kind of in the opposite direction um, that there will be um, an, an item on the ballot in November for um, an amendment to the state constitution um, that would um you know, essentially enshrine um, gun rights in the Second Amendment into the state constitution and say that, um, you know, any any restrictions on uh, any any Iowan Second Amendment right would have to would be subject to strict scrutiny, you know, which is a um, pretty high legal bar um, to, to, to pass. Um, and so you have a lot of um, gun safety advocates saying that uh, with should that pass, should Iowa voters approve that amendment to the state constitution, that it would make enacting, you know, what they deem it to be common sense, um, you know, gun safety reforms, regulations, including red flag laws, that that it would make that um, uh, almost impossible. Yep. That's such a great point, Tom. Thanks for remembering that, because that, that's absolutely right. If that, if that proposed constitutional amendment passes, then what, from what we've been told by legal experts is, is, something like a red flag law would be useless because it would be deemed un- unconstitutional um, my, in all likelihood. My dad was a purveyor of dark humor, and he used to say that, you know, if every American were required to carry a shotgun, there'd be almost no crime, which I said there'd be a lot more people that died of shotgun blasts, but I, I couldn't persuade him. I think a law like that is more likely in Iowa than a, than a red flag law, maybe a, a requirement that we all carry a shooting iron required carry go <laughs> go from permit list to required all right well uh <laughs> plenty to watch for um uh in on that uh, front in the in the coming weeks and months um get back to the present day now um it was an active and dare i say even big week in the u.s house where legislation moved on marriage equality and access to contraception the bills were presented by a majority U.S. House Democrats and were essentially written in response to the recent U.S. Supreme Court ruling that overturned Roe versus Wade. That ruling effectively ended the federal right for a pregnant person to have an abortion. 
And with that ruling in mind, federal Democrats have now moved these bills to offer protections to what they view as other rights, including for same-sex marriages and, as you said, access to contraception. Um, So let's talk about those each here. Uh, Caleb, you wrote about the marriage equality vote, and it wasn't a straight Democrat-Republican split uh, in the Iowa delegation, was it? Tell us how folks voted and what they had to say about the bill. No, so uh, two Republicans out of three in Iowa's um, delegation uh, joined anti-marriage equality vote. So yeah, I think it's going to be interesting to see how that um, falls if it does come up in the Senate. Yeah, which, which you have to believe it will. Uh, Jared, did Randy Feenstra ever issue a statement on that bill? Oh, we can't. Are, are you Zoom? Are you Zoom muted, Jared? Yeah, so I uh, haven't <laughs> seen anything uh, from his office, at least through this morning okay. with regard to his vote. But I, I would mention with uh, Feenstra going all the way back um, to his first term in the uh, the Iowa Senate in 2011, he sponsored a joint resolution which basically proposed an amendment to the state constitution saying that marriage is between one man and one woman and that no other legal union should be valid or recognized in the state. Um, that didn't go anywhere in that session, but it kind of showed where Feenstra stands on this and has continued to stand uh, as it comes to uh, marriage. Yeah, that one man, one woman amendment was heartbreaking to the one man, one lawnmower uh, marriages that Steve King warned, warned us all about way back when it uh, was a threat to to those beautiful unions. <laughs> Tom, you wrote about the contraception bill. Um, so this issue had a little wrinkle in that Republicans didn't like the Democrats' bill. So in Iowa, a couple of them wrote their own. Tell us about that. Yeah, so yesterday the House passed a bill largely along party lines that would establish a right to contraception nationwide. House Democrats say the legislation would defend decades-long precedent and ensure access to contraceptives in the face of of the Supreme Court uh, decision uh, overturning uh, fundamental right to an abortion. Um, And in his opinion, um, overturning Roe last month, Justice Clarence Thomas wrote that the, excuse me, Justice Clarence Thomas wrote that the court should now review other precedents. He mentioned rulings that um, affirmed uh, rights to same-sex marriage and same-sex relationships, which he's covered. But he also um, referenced uh, married uh, uh, couples' uh, use of contraceptions, uh, a ruling from 1965. Um Iowa's Republican uh, U.S. House members voted against the bill. Uh, Republicans said that the bill went too far, that it would lead to more abortions, which supporters deny, and would allow the use of drugs not yet fully approved by um, the FDA, and that it would force healthcare providers to offer contraceptives, even if um, that contradicted their religious beliefs. So um, Representatives Ashley Hinton and Marionette Miller-Meeks instead introduced a separate bill that would allow adult woman to, women to access over-the-counter birth control pills that have been approved by the FDA as safe and effective um, and would require the FDA to give priority review for over-the-counter access to uh, those routine-use oral contraceptives, um, again, that the agency has already deemed uh, as safe and effective, um, and that would be for, for women um, ages 18 and, and, and older. House Democrats blocked consideration um, of the bill. You know, over-the-counter birth control pills are available worldwide, but are available in the U.S. only with a prescription. Um, In contrast, emergency contraceptives, including Plan B, are already available over-the-counter. Henson, though, emphasized that her bill pertains only to 
um, access to FDA approved routine use birth control pills um, over the counter and at emergency contraceptives. Um, Hinton said that a majority of women support making birth control available over the counter without a prescription and that women should be able to access their preferred birth control method conveniently and that this was um, particularly important for women in rural areas um, who may have to drive an hour or more to see their doctor. Um, Iowa Democrats, uh, including State Senator Liz Mathis, who's running to challenge Hinton in the November election for Iowa's second congressional district seat. Um, argue that uh, it will not matter if birth control is available over the counter if it's not available in the first place. Um, and they note that several states have already restricted access to contraception by cutting off public funding for it, um, defining abortion broadly enough to include contraception, contraception, excuse me, and allowing healthcare providers to refuse to provide services related to, to contraception um, based on their um, personal beliefs. Um, it got sent to the Senate. It's not clear whether, um, you know, Democrats' Right to Contraception Act um, will will pass in the evenly divided Senate where they'll need at least 10 GOP votes to, to defeat a filibuster. Um, Iowa Republican U.S. Senator Joni Ernst uh, told the Washington Post that she feels um, strongly about making sure women have contraception. Um, Ernst introduced um, legislation in 2019 similar to Henson's bill that would expand access to, to over-the-counter con contraception without a prescription and allow um, for people to, to pay for it with their health savings account. Ernst, though, was noncommittal about voting for federal protections for contraceptions, saying perhaps it should be up to the states. Um, U.S. Senator Chuck Grassley said that uh, he was not aware of any meaningful effort to challenge access to contraception, um, which he said has been widely available for decades. He noted that most insurance plans cover it as well, um, but went on to say that he supports access to contraception um, and doesn't think that the government should further restrict it. Yeah, and th and that's a good point. The the uh, to to look ahead on on the similarly on the marriage equality bill. Uh, that's kind of the discussion now too. Is is are there ten votes uh, from the Republican side in the Senate to get it? Uh, past the filibuster uh, that's kind of the ongoing debate and calculus uh, being figured out right now and and uh, as of the last story I read anyways uh, that they were maybe close but uh, not quite sure if they're at 60 uh, yet so it'll be interesting to see if either of those uh, make it to a, a, a senate uh, a floor vote real quick uh, Todd I'm going to put you on the spot here I, di I didn't script this but as we're talking through this um, I remember that one of the criticisms complaints grumbles from house democrats is that uh, or i'm sorry house republicans is that uh these are not they're just uh political token bills that that they're not um legitimate legislative efforts what's what's your view from your seat in the cheap seats is are, are democrats legitimately trying to enshrine some protections in law here or is this just a way to get some republicans on record in an election year well, it's it's both. I mean, I, I do think Democrats want to get these get these rights, you know, into statute and offer some protections to some constituencies that, you know, make up part of their a significant part of their party. And also, yeah, they want to contrast with Republicans and show that, uh, you know, more most GOP House members are are not supportive of these rights or at least are unwilling to, uh, you know, put them into law. You know, there's there. Some of them argue that <clears throat> these are already precedents and they're well established. But 
you know, we just Ooh, saw that conversation well, sounds familiar. Yeah, we just saw a well-established precedent, <laughs> you know, addressing the right to privacy thrown out. These also rest on those, you know, 14th Amendment uh, privacy due process type arguments. So, um, yeah, I think the fears are legitimate that the court could turn on some of these things and that they need to be put into the law. And and yeah, both. It's it's both, a you know, a way to get Democrat Republicans on the record and also to to do something that their constituents expect. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of grumbling that the Democrats haven't done enough in the wake of the of the, the the Dobbs ruling to sort of shore up these rights, and and this is a way to show that they're at least giving it a shot. Yeah, that's. I'm glad you said that, Todd, because I've had that thought a, a few times in in recent days and weeks that I, I don't know how anybody anywhere anymore can say, well, I don't think that they will ever dot 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 whatever that is, fill in the blank. Uh, clearly. Uh, precedence is is not a not a thing anymore uh and and i i can understand at least uh, you know the idea that uh some of the some things may need a an extra whatever extra layer of protection if folks feel that they require and, and can provide uh so we'll we'll keep an eye on that and see if that comes up in the senate and uh and obviously then uh we'll have uh our senators here chuck grassley and Joni ernst uh having to deal more directly with those issues uh, moving on um, to the main event. Now, here we go. Political reporters. We've got polling uh, last weekend. We got the first media com Des Moines register, Iowa poll of the 2022 general election season. Unfortunately, the poll did not really survey the state's most competitive races at the congressional level. Uh, they just asked the generic ballot question instead. Um, but we did get our first Iowa poll look at the campaigns for governor and U.S. Senate. Um, in the Senate campaign, Republican incumbent Chuck Grassley appears to have a closer race than he's used to, at least historically. He leads Democratic challenger Mike Franken by eight percentage points. Uh, so, so Jared, um, how does the, the Franken campaign view this? Is this good news for Mike Franken that he's not down by 20-plus points like so many Grassley challengers of the past? Or is it still bad news for Mike Franken because he's still down eight points, which may be a steep hill to climb uh, for the rest of this year? Well, um, you know, there was a, uh, a change research poll all the way back in uh, April that showed Franklin or Franken, excuse me, trailing Grassley by three points. Um, so in that respect, this is less favorable and a tapering off from that. But if you're a, a Franken fan, a, a Franken yak, uh, if you will, um, <laughs> There are um, there are some positives to to focus on in the poll. Seven um, percent of likely voters say they would vote for someone else. Two percent say they would not vote, and five percent said that they're unsure. Uh, so as long as my math is not completely atrocious, that's fourteen percent. And you know you get a little more than half of those people to come over to your side, and it's essentially a, a jump ball from there. Um, and, you know, just as a historical note, it is interesting that the margin uh, in the poll right now is 8% because that's still the narrowest margin that Grassley has won by in a Senate race. And that was his first one, you know, all the way back in 1980 against uh, John Culver. So, yeah, this is uh, a little bit of a different uh, terrain for, for Grassley. And, you know, not the greatest terrain necessarily for Franken's campaign because 8% is a sizable number, but it's not an insurmountable one as long as you're in single digits. There you go. I think that's a good way to put it. And, and um, 
it'll just be interesting to me because it's a, uh, like you said, it it's it's not twenty; it's all the way down to eight. So that's a good thing for the Franken campaign. But that last eight points, I'm sure, uh, barring some kind of seismic shift in the landscape, will will be difficult. And as we always talk about, the national landscape seems to favor Republicans this year. So um, Franken may be swimming against those headwinds uh, uh, as well. Um, in the governor's race, things are not quite so compelling, at least not for the moment. Uh, Republican incumbent Governor Kim Reynolds leads Democratic challenger Deidre DeGier in the Iowa poll by 17 percentage points. That's a big one, obviously. If there's a silver lining for the DeGier campaign, maybe it's that Reynolds is only at eight, at 48 percent. So that's not a gigantic number by any means. And and at 31%, maybe there's room for DeGere's support to grow the more that she increases her name recognition. But man, still, 17 points, that's a lot, to say the least. Uh, Sarah, how does DeGere make up that ground? Yeah, I think like you said, the 17 points is certainly a monumental, just a huge, a huge hill to climb. And it's a, you know, it's a Decline for the Diedrich or the Deidre Deidre campaign from the previous Iowa poll, um, where they were separated by eight points, which granted didn't include options for other candidates other than the two major parties. But um, so we see Reynolds support growing from the previous Iowa poll, and we're um, but in terms of how she makes up that ground, if if she can, I really honestly think. Um, she probably needs some better headwinds from the national political landscape. If obviously President Biden right now is um, is very unpopular, and so you know the president of her party being unpopular definitely doesn't help her a lot. So, but you know whether or not her strategy works, she is seems to be focusing a lot on healthcare and um, rural issues. Some of those uh, basic staying away from um, those really controversial issues. So we'll see how it turns out. Yeah. And to your point, you know, if, if Mike Franken, all of a sudden, if that race becomes competitive, like legitimately competitive, if that number shrinks in future polling, then maybe that picks up um, uh, Dejir a little bit um, as well. Uh, Todd, Todd, give me uh, your quick thoughts on, on both those poll results. Uh, What does that eight point margin in the Senate race say to you, and is 17-point deficit, is that a hopeless cause for this year? Well, I think the eight-point lead for Grassley means the, you know, the race is competitive. Uh, that, that's a good-sized lead, but it's also, as, as has been mentioned, that Grassley generally does a lot better against his Democratic opponents, and, and he's below 50%, which is not good news for a long-term incumbent who's well-known. Uh, that suggests maybe there are some doubts. Uh, as for Desir, I mean, her her biggest problem, which, you know, the campaign finance numbers came out this week and and her fundraising still is not great. She's she's not getting money from the typical traditional big money Democratic donors. The ISCA hasn't given her any money yet. Uh, so it takes resources to get out there and to be more aggressive and to be more visible and to get that name recognition up. And so far, Democrats at least the donor class are sort of sleepwalking through this election and have decided not to invest in her campaign, which, uh, you know, the consequences of another Reynolds term couldn't be more sharp for Democrats, but yet they seem pretty complacent. So uh, if she could get in, get some cash and 
get out there. And I mean, yeah, it's, it's July. No, no, no campaign is won in July. So she's still, you know, has a, has a chance, but yeah, it's, it's a, it's a big deficit and, and the governor is still, you know, heavily favored to win. All right. So uh, let's finish this up and go around the horn with this last one and talk about the congressional races. Um, like I said, the Iowa poll didn't survey those congressional races. They just asked the generic ballot question. And uh, just for bookkeeping's sake, the incumbent party was the leader in all four districts. Um, but we did get some internal polling this week in each of the first three districts, which are Iowa's most competitive. And the results are noteworthy. Again, if you have faith in the accuracy of those internal polls. Um, and so the results, and these were three separate polls by three separate pollsters, um, showed the second and third district races literally tied and the first district candidates divided by a single solitary percentage point. So, so all obviously really, really close, really interesting. So, so let's, let's go around the horn here, a district per person, um, do we believe that these campaigns are that close? Do we believe in this polling? Give me rapid fire. Give me a yes or no, and then a succinct thought. Ready? All right. Here we go. Sarah, is it believable that the new first district race between Republican incumbent Marionette Miller-Meeks and Democratic challenger Christina Bohannon is virtually tied, just one point between them? Yes, but I would also note that there were 22% of undecided voters. I think there's not a lot of uh, name recognition right now, at least among some voters with uh, with Christina Bohannon, perhaps that that is a big undecided slice of the pie, even this early in in the in the season. All right, thank you, Sarah. Tom, is it believable that the new second district race between Republican incumbent Ashley Hinson and Democratic challenger Liz Mathis is literally tied? Yes, I, I think it's believable. <laughs> I think it's believable this could be a, a close and highly contested race. It's a swing district where the seat has switched parties, I think, for the last five elections. Um, I would place this caveat. The nonpartisan election forecaster, Cook Political Report, lists the race among its, its list of competitive races um, for the midterm elections, though it gives the advantage to Henson, uh, rating it a likely Republican uh, district, meaning the seat is not considered competitive at this point, but uh, there's the potential to become so. And I think that that's probably fair. There you go. That's a good note. And I think the the first district is is rated the same way, if, if I remember right, the Miller meets. Correct. Uh, yeah. Yeah. All right. Good, Tom. Thank you. Caleb, is it believable that the new third district race between Democratic incumbent Cindy Axney and Republican challenger Zach Nunn is literally tied? Yes. Uh, this one seems like the closest of the three, and this kind of um, just kind of backs that up. Uh, both parties, I mean, I think the Republican Party um, especially are putting a huge spotlight on this district. I think the Republicans think they can win it back, but they know it's going to be tough. Democrats obviously know the same thing. So, um, yeah, it's it, it, bo- both of these you know, past pollings will tell you that there's, there's not a clear advantage here. Yeah, I think we would have been surprised if this one hadn't been close, if not tied. Yes. All right. Jared, being our fourth district guy, how lonely do you feel in this discussion? Uh, cue up some music by uh, Akon, Aaron, because I am Mr. Lonely uh, over here. <laughs> um, we can't uh, we can't get pollsters to pay us any attention at all, and and really, you know, it's it's a dent to all of our self worth. <laughs> oh man! All right, Todd, we'll let you take us home here. Looking at the whole batch. Uh, broadly speaking, do you think these campaigns are all as close as those internal polls suggest? Yeah, I think they're close. I don't know. 
I don't know that, you know, statistical ties and stuff, there may, there may be a little more room in some of these districts as far as percentages, but yeah, I mean, I, I believe that's the case, but I mean, and it's, it's easy to believe this considering all the things we've had to believe in the last couple of years. This is, this is like one of the least implausible things I've, I've been asked to believe. So I, <laughs> that's you know. such a great point. <laughs> I oh, think I'll just man. go ahead and believe it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and on that note, we wrap up this edition of on Iowa politics. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did tell your friends and remember, you can subscribe to us on any number of streaming audio services, including iTunes, Spotify, and Amazon and a host of others. If you have any suggestions for topics to discuss or you just want to reach out, you can email us at podcasts at thegazette.com. And now that you've listened to the On Iowa Politics podcast, make sure you're also subscribed to the On Iowa Politics newsletter, where every morning in your inbox, you'll get all the latest politics and government coverage from our team. You can, you can subscribe to that On Iowa Politics newsletter at thegazette.com. And don't forget that the work of everyone you heard here today can be found on the pages and websites of the Quad City Times, Waterloo, Cedar Falls Courier, Sioux City Journal, Mason City Globe Gazette, Muscatine Journal, Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil, and the Cedar Rapids Gazette. Please give us those clicks, people. The Olympics will play us out this week. If you know an Iowa band or musician who should be featured on the podcast, please send us a sound file. For Tom, Caleb, Jared, Sarah, Todd, and our producer, Stephen, I'm Aaron Murphy. Thanks for listening.
Get a daily update from the Gazette with our daily news podcast. Add it to your podcast player or your Alexa-friendly device to get a bite-sized local news update each day. Check it out at thegazette.com slash podcasts.